thank you, Connie, for that beautiful song, El Shaddai. Well, for the final message of our series, Where Jesus Walked, we're going to go to the last chapter of Luke today. Once again, Luke 24, it's where we were last Sunday. We're going a little further in the passage. And if you're able to, would you please stand for the reading today? We'll begin in verse number 45 and read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 24, as we get started here this morning. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. It said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. This morning we're going to cover the walk to Bethany. And would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for your walk on this earth. And as we have seen you in the garden, as we've seen you on the cross, as we've seen you in resurrection, we pray this morning that we would understand more about your ascension and what it means in our lives. Pray that you'd guide us in this message and help our hearts to be in tune with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you listen as Kathy sings? John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and I am known of mine. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are, I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord, you catch me when I'm falling and you show me who I am I am 
my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again. Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of what I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly feeding here today and gone tomorrow. I'm a wave tossed in the ocean. I'm a vapor in the wind, still you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling, and you've told me who I am. I am yours. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling. And you've told me who I am. I am yours. I am yours. Well, thank you, ladies, for that message and song this morning. I sure do appreciate it. Have you ever had a week or two weeks in your life, maybe a month or a summer, when the whole direction of your life was drastically changed? I mean, immediately sometimes, maybe over a day sometimes your life has drastically changed. And maybe you met her, or maybe you met him, or you providentially stumbled across a job that you'd never considered before, and it became your life path. On the other side of things, maybe your house burned down. Maybe you were robbed. Maybe you had a car accident that changed everything. Maybe you were in the doctor's office and you received news that you never expected. Things in our lives can happen very fast, can't they? And they can change everything for us. On Labor Day of, of 2001, September 3rd was the day. We had our two little boys, Cody and Dawson, out swimming in the pool in the backyard and Cody was four, Dawson was two, 
Man, they were cute back then. <laughs> have no idea what happened since, but hey, they were cute guys. And anyway, we were just relaxing, and, and the phone rang. And Amy answered, and she talked for a few minutes, and she came running back outside and said, You guys get dressed. We have to go right now. Oh, what, where we have to go? Where are we going? She said, Well, that was a caseworker from Health and Welfare on the phone. Dawson's seven-month-old sister just came into their care, and they asked us to take her. And so an hour later, we're walking through Target with baby Autumn in the cart, buying bottles and blankets and baby clothes. That was a big change. Our lives would never be the same in many ways. And she's such a special girl. We love Autumn. She's 13 now. And the next day, we had to trade the car in for a minivan. That was brutal on me. Another big change. The next week, eight days later, 9-11 happened. And things changed for a whole lot of people. And I think of those eight days in our life experience as the only thing that I can think of that sort of compares with the immediate life change this group of disciples must have felt. What a whirlwind for them. They head to Jerusalem for the feast. They enter the city like celebrities. People are cheering all around them for Messiah, crying Hosanna. They're proud to be disciples of the Christ. Days later, they sit in an upper room. Jesus breaks bread with them. And then he tells them that one of them would betray him that very night. We've walked with them to the garden where the Bible says they all forsook him and fled. We've walked with them to Golgotha where most of them watched from afar off. As discouraged as human beings could possibly be. We've walked with them to Emmaus as they trudged down a path of confusion and doubt. And think of the life change that they had experienced. Now Jesus was definitely alive. They had seen Him multiple times. He had eaten with them and spoken with them, and they had just had a broiled fish dinner together. And they had a fun time, but as shocking as the crucifixion and the resurrection had been to the disciples' systems, The day Jesus led them out as far as Bethany was as stunning as anything they would ever experience. So we're going to go back up to verse 45 and get into the message this morning on the road to Bethany. Let's start by talking about the preaching of his name. The Bible says in verse 45, once again, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Now, I think these guys are just average fellows. They were fishermen. They were not known for their intellectual capacity. Um, They were called by others the hillbillies of Galilee. And they had a tough time understanding before Jesus died all the things He was talking about. In fact, now that He was alive again, they still... We're trying to figure out what he was talking about. And so the Bible says he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. 
And uh, we read in verse 47, look at it again, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So there's a process that's given here that we'll cover, and I think most of us would be familiar with, called the Great Commission. As Jesus opened their understanding, it was crucial that these devoted men had some recognition of what they were being sent out to do in his name. Yesterday I was out trying to kill some dandelions in the yard. It's a bad year for them, right? How many of you had some dandelions in your yard? Anybody get a notice from your homeowners association yet? Oh, hate that. So embarrassing, right? Um, but here we uh, were out, I was spraying some things, and a van came in the neighborhood. Two guys hopped out, and they're passing out handbills and running up to houses. And one of the guys came over, and he said, Sir, could I talk to you for a minute? Sure, go ahead. Spraying weeds. You know, yeah, you can talk as long as you want. And he said, uh, Would you like one room of your house, the carpet cleaned for free today? And I wanted to say, my, my poor friend, Many, many years ago, I was in your shoes. You are a Kirby vacuum salesman. And God bless you for the next six weeks where you actually stick with it and uh, do what, <laughs> what you've been called to do. They go into these neighborhoods and do this. And I thought back to the longest spring of my life uh, in 1994, um, way back in, it was in Seattle area, there wasn't sunshine for the whole time that I was out doing it. And back then, you'd offer a flashlight to get into this house. And they literally would tell you in the, in the sales meeting, put your foot in the door and don't let them close the door. Because if you can keep your foot in the door, you can sell them a vacuum cleaner. And uh, we sang songs, you know. I don't remember the songs, but they had it literally, I'm not joking, in our Kirby meeting, we had a song book where we had to learn the Kirby songs. I'm not joking. And it'd roll out the barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun. You know, we'd change the words, and it was something about Kirby. Uh, we sell Kirby, rah, rah, rah. And you had all these incentives, and man, it was a big time. But you know, it's hard to sell any product. I don't care what you sell. If you've never experienced it, and if you've never really believed in it, now, some of you, God bless you, you have sold every product under the universe. And you continue to have to go through every product. And, and God bless them, my, my in-laws are in that bunch. And they have tried every vitamin known to humankind. And they have sold every vitamin known to humankind. And they're probably listening to the sermon on the web today. God bless you, folks. I love you. And they have spent thousands upon thousands of thousands of dollars on vitamins. And uh, I'm sure it's worked out well for them because they're doing good. I don't know where I was going with that story. Anytime I talk about my in-laws, I get sidetracked. I'm just teasing. Just teasing. My mother-in-law is listening, like really, right now. Just teasing you. Okay? How many of you have a mother-in-law? Okay, God bless you. You know what I'm talking about. So, but anyway, here these disciples are, and Jesus is going to ask them, to go out with this message to all the world. 
And what's unique about them is that they were not going to go out and sell something. All they had to do was go out and talk about what they'd seen and what they'd heard. You know, that's what they tell you in these sales companies. Don't try to sell it. Just talk about what happened to you. Tell them your story. And so you'd go out to the house. You'd say, you know, I know that you don't think you need a new vacuum, but could I show you a demonstration? And I'd talk about what happened in, in your house and how you sucked up certain things off the floor and you'd go with their vacuum and do it a hundred times. And then you go over the same spot with your vacuum and you show them that this one picked up stuff even after yours did it a hundred times. And then you would do the gross-out factor. You would go to their bed, to their mattress, and say, could I vacuum the top of your bed? I just want to show you something. And Kirby invented this masterful thing called the black screen. And you would put the black screen on the intake of the vacuum cleaner. And you would roll the vacuum over their bed, just a couple strips. And the black screen, usually, depending on you know, whose house you're in, turned white from skin. The skin that was down in their mattress. And then you would get the gross factor. Did you know you were sleeping on that? Did you know that there are dust mites that are down there eating that? And you know, oh, I didn't know that. And there was a verge, there was kind of a line of whether or not they were going to toss you out of the house, like physically, or they were going to buy a vacuum. It was one or the other. It was dicey. But Jesus, he wasn't asking them to sell anything. He was asking them to go into the world with a message. And so he said, guys, here's why I suffered on the cross. Here's why I rose from the dead. So that the gospel can be preached in all nations. From right here in Jerusalem, expanding to the whole region of Judea, and then to the outcasts of Samaria. Men, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth through you. Look at verse 48. And ye are witnesses of these things. Why was the gospel going to expand? Because they were witnesses. Because they had seen the print of the nails in his hands and feet. They had seen the gospel living right in front of them. You know, spreading the gospel around the globe is still the foremost priority of the local church. The mandate, the commission, the instruction that Jesus gave to the first church continues with every New Testament church in the world today. In fact, if we don't take the Great Commission seriously, there's actually no reason for us to exist as a church. Because that's our instruction. That's what we've been called to do. Repentance and the remission of sins is still the main thing for the local church. And for these disciples, it was simply telling others what they had personally witnessed. They were going to be able to share the miracle of the gospel by eyewitness account. You know, if you've ever seen the gospel change a life, you have an eyewitness story too. I love the last verse of the book of John. Look over at John 21. I want you to see this one. If you have never 
come across this verse, or maybe you read it, you didn't really read it. Check this out. John 21, verse number 25. This is the continuing gospel. Look what it said. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. You know, the gospel story continues. And there could be a book written on what Jesus did in his life, and her life, and her life, and her life. We all have a story of what the gospel did in our lives. I love the definition one old preacher gave of witness. He said, a witness is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's all it is. One beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Lest we as Christian people start to think that we're anything on our own. Could you go back and remember that you're a sinner saved by grace? That's all we are. And as sinners saved by grace, we have a commission to go to our neighbors, to our friends, to our relatives, to our cities, to our workplace, and to tell them where we found bread. You know, there's stories all the time across the world and even in the United States of people who are hungry. Not just hungry, they're starving. And we see stories in the news of people who die because of poverty even in the United States. Of people who don't get any food. And if you had one of those people outside of your house with your stock pantry and your Pop-Tarts and your Kellogg's cornflakes, you would feel horrible to know that someone who was dying of starvation was outside your door. But when it comes to the gospel, we don't see it quite the same way. We don't understand that there are people who are starving for peace. They're starving for someone to love them and care about them and give them any good news at all. And we have the greatest news known to man in the gospel. And sometimes we withhold it from others because we miss the point of the Great Commission. And so the preaching was essential. It was going to be a big deal. But then back to Luke 24, I want to see the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. Jesus had explained before his death to his disciples that the Father's gift was going to be a comforter to the disciples. When we think of a comforter, we think of a warm blanket. But that's not all the comforter was going to be. The Holy Spirit was going to come and be a living advocate in them, in their hearts. And now that promise was coming true. Look at Luke 24, 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. So Jesus explains to them that now the time's come. The promise is going to be sent to you to dwell in you and all future believers. And with, within days of this time, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They would be filled with the Holy Spirit. At that moment in time in Acts 2, these disciples and all the people in the upper room were going to get all of the Holy Spirit they would ever get. 
Okay, so, so please don't be confused on this topic. The moment that they had the Holy Spirit fill them, that was all the Holy Spirit they were ever going to get. They had to remain committed and make sure the Holy Spirit had them. Make sure that they were committed and submitted before the Spirit. And now every believer in Jesus Christ is born of the Spirit. Indwelt by the Spirit. Baptized by the Spirit. Sealed by the Spirit. Those don't happen at different times. They all happen at once. At the moment of salvation. The moment you receive Jesus Christ in your life, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of the Father. And so it wasn't just for them, it's for us. It's for all future disciples too. Also in that verse though, we see the power from above. Look at the second part here of the verse. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So the Holy Spirit was going to be their advocate. But the Holy Spirit was also going to be the power supply for the entire New Testament church as it added believers, as it multiplied believers, as it added churches, as it multiplied churches throughout the known world. See, the Spirit is the advocate living in us that teaches us how to live and how to pray. But you know, the Spirit's more than that. The, the Spirit is the earnest of our spiritual inheritance, the down payment that proves we're bought with a price. But the Spirit's more than that. The Spirit in 2014 is the only power source to enable disciples. He's the only one. The Bible says in Romans 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, it's impossible for us to do real ministry outside of the Spirit's influence. Anything that you do to serve God outside of the Spirit turns to dust. So often we try to do God's work out of personal ambition. I'm reading a book right now by Dave Harvey called Rescuing Ambition that somebody recommended to me. And I'm about 40, 50 pages through it. I'll tell you what, it is tearing me up. Um, because we sometimes think our, amb our ambition as believers is guaranteed to be pure. It's guaranteed to be crystally pure because we're Christians. We want to do the right thing. But you know, we even struggle with false ambitions as believers. And uh, Dave says in, in the book, one of my favorite quotes, we grow small trying to be great. Anytime we try to be great on our own, we make ourselves smaller. You know, what people do is to try to be better themselves, they try to tear other people around them down so they can pull themselves up and they just make themselves smaller. And there's some key things that, that I had read in there that are really neat. When we do what we do, even when we do it for God with wrong motives, we lose all spiritual fruit. I want to quote a paragraph from this book. I wouldn't normally do this, but it's so good. He said, earlier I mentioned my struggle with the wrong kinds of ambition. I call them Dave-bitions. So, so instead of ambitions, he calls them Dave-bitions. Because that, they're coming from him. They're personalized. And every ambition that you have and I have has to be focused and it has to be filtered through the Spirit. 
He said, so often I'm Dave Bicious. I assume that my family would work much better if they all majored in Daveology. Friendships work best if they have a Davetistic bent. I believe many of life's understandings could be cleared up with just a few Daveological insights. Overall, the world would be a better place if we could just celebrate an annual Dave-toberfest. I guess you can call me a Daveaholic. There I've said it, I feel so much better. And that's true of all of us. We struggle with our ambition. We struggle with where our power is going to come from. In our sinful nature, we're all just like Dave, who wrote the book. Even after we become children of God, we are glory thieves. We try to steal glory from God. Even as we work for God, we try to steal glory from God. You know, Christian service always reflects who Jesus is. If it's spiritual Christian service, it just reflects who Jesus is. The Spirit in us provides us with power and always gives glory to the Father. I was reading about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world by the age of 21 years old. Think about that. Anybody here 21 years old today? Okay, Robbie is. Anybody else? Yeah, any other 21s at heart? Man, you got prematurely gray. It's a rough deal, isn't it? <laughs> For old Robbie. Nobody in here is 21? In the whole room? You're 21? You wish you were 21. How old are you, Stefan? 19. You're not even close. Rochelle, how old are you? You're 19 too? Alex, how old are you? 24? Oh, my word. So Alexander the Great had conquered the known world by the age of 21. And when the last battle took place and he took the last country and the last tribe that was known to him at that time, you know how he responded by knowing that he had taken over the world? He wept. He wept. He had a cry session. He grabbed a box of Kleenex and cried his eyes out. That's right. He broke down. You know why? Because there were no other worlds to conquer. Think about that for just a minute. He had gained the whole world, but it wasn't enough. That's the way it is with our selfish ambitions. You know, rich people don't think they're rich because there's somebody richer. People who have all the nice toys want nicer toys. People who have big houses think they have small houses. Go to India sometime. We, we think that we have things kind of in a box that we define for ourselves because our ambition still wants to be explored. We always want more. The author of the book continued with these categories from his life. And he had several names that he had for himself. First one is Dave the Great. So just like Alexander the Great, Dave the Great. This is the guy who has to make sure that everyone from the old neighborhood knows his success. And if anybody dares question his greatness, he will capture on Facebook for anyone who missed how successful he's become. 
He's the guy that will make sure to show up at his 20th high school reunion so that everyone will know how great he is. And he's going to bring his trophy wife with him or, his trophy, or her trophy husband. I almost said his trophy husband. That could be a mistake in these days. Then there's not just Dave the Great, there's Dave the Occasionally Great. And so he'll do some selfless, selfless things for a while, but then resort to selfishness. And then there's, I like this one, Dave the Great in his own mind. It's one of my favorite ones. This Dave thinks great thoughts about Dave. And he has wonderful plans for Dave. And he thinks Dave is going to be on top of the world eventually. Then there's Dave the potentially great. Everybody who knows him says that he could really do something if he just put his mind to it, if he just stay focused. There's Dave the formerly great. He's the one who's been there and done that. And he'll talk about the way things were back in the day. Because he used to be great. There's Dave the comparatively great. This Dave isn't perfect, but he can always point out a few people that he's managed to stay ahead of. Well, I'm not Donald Trump, but I'm better than that guy. Right? I've got more than that guy. So the comparatively great. There's Dave. The tomorrow I'll be great. He has great intentions. He's just about to do something. He can feel it. He just has to get a little rested up first. Get a little more organized. Get a little more motivated. You ask him why he still hasn't done what he said to do, what he said he'd do, and he turns into, and don't miss this one, Dave the if-only great. He just can't catch a break. He's always thwarted by something in his great endeavors, and it's usually by the decisions, the weaknesses, or the failures of others. See, the people around him are the ones who mess him up. If only he could find people to count on. If only his wife, if only his husband, if only his boss. If only people were more predictable. If only he had the resources that so-and-so has or the time that so-and-so has. He would be truly great. He is Dave the if-only great. Here's the other one. Dave the I'd be great if others would just notice. Terrific name. I'd be great if others would just notice. He'd never claim to be great on his own, but he sure would appreciate it if some people would notice his efforts. He doesn't really care if God notices, but it feels better when people realized how much he sacrificed. You know, in the church world, we have this happen all the time. In ministry, in service to God, we have people who become the I'd be great if others would just notice type person. Because they have to have somebody validate in a human way what they're doing or they'll stop doing it. That's what happens when our, our ambition is not geared in Jesus, but it's geared in us. And then there's Dave, the I'll be great if it kills me. He pushes hard. He's not going to take no for an answer. And no matter who you are, we all face the issue of flesh versus spirit in our lives. We face the issue of flesh versus spirit in our motives. We read stories from God's Word of people who are helpless without the Lord. 
but somehow we think we can manage things on our own. I have a challenge for you. Go home today and take out your vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Ironic that we talked about that today, huh? By the way, we have a Kirby at our house, just so you know. An old, washed-up Kirby that's very, very old. We also have an Oric, and they compete with each other to see who can suck out the most dirt. But I want you to go home, take out your vacuum cleaner. I want you to vacuum your entire house today without plugging your vacuum in. Right? It's a challenge for you. Take the time to go home, get your vacuum out, and keep the cord on the spool, and vacuum your entire house. Right? That would be useless, wouldn't it? Do you know that that's how most of us are living the Christian life? We're going through all the motions. We're moving in all the right places. We're going exactly where we're supposed to be, and we're showing up for the appearance of church. We're showing up for the appearance of service or ministry, but we're not plugged in. Can I tell you this? If you're not plugged in, everything you do is useless. It's empty. It's vanity. The Bible said when the judgment seat of Christ comes, that it will all be burned up in the fire. None of it will last. And so if I could just take a practical thing today and say, hey, make sure you're plugged in to the Holy Spirit's power in your life. We often have this appearance with no power. Jesus told the disciples that they would be endued with power from on high. That the Holy Spirit would provide them the words and the resources and the boldness for every situation they were going to encounter. And the book of Acts is full of situations where they said, God, we don't know what to do. We're counting on you. There were times where they were standing before judgment seats and governors and imprisonments and even beheadings. And they said, God, we don't know how to answer. Give us the words. And the Holy Spirit provided. He gave them exactly what they needed because of this promise Jesus made. Back in Luke 24, I want to see this fourth part. Verse number 51. Actually, let's start back in verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany. Bethany was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus was ascended from the Mount of Olives, and it was parallel there with Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. This fourth part of our message, the parting into heaven. You can imagine as they're standing out there, one disciple says to another, Hey, Thomas, did, did you see that? He disappeared. And they grabbed John. John, did you know about this? Is this what he's been trying to tell us? Acts 1 tells us what happened next. Two men stood by them in white apparel and said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, so, so shall come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. 
I love the fact that as he is blessing them for future work, Jesus ascends into heaven. You know, his disappearance had a profound impact on his disciples. See, when he died on the cross and they heard his body was missing, they couldn't fathom that he'd risen. But now, faith had grown in their hearts. And as he ascended, they took it all in and they moved forward in the Spirit to turn the world upside down. It's no accident that the next event in Bible prophecy is named by the Scriptures, the Blessed Hope. Or sometimes we call it the blessed hope. For all that call on his name, we will ascend like he did to meet Jesus in the air. Another name for it is the rapture. Just as Jesus blessed them as he went up, the blessed hope says that we're going up. And we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. And so it's an event of all events. But then we get to verse 52 and we see the praise that continues. The result of the ascension was that they worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. See, the crucifixion revealed denying and doubting disciples. The crucifixion wasn't just an ordeal for the Christ on the cross. It was an ordeal for all of his disciples. Peter, who swore up and down that he didn't even know him. Thomas, who doubted him. All of them who went afar off, who had their lives totally messed up by the crucifixion. The ascension reveals a totally different group of disciples. Now we find them worshiping. Before they were doubting, now they're worshiping. They were filled, it says in verse 52, with great joy. And great joy should fill the hearts of the children of God. When we consider the reality of the fulfilled gospel, the fulfilled gospel says that this life is not all there is. We're just strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We're passing through to the promised land of heaven place where all the bills are paid, a place where there's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. The fulfilled gospel puts everything into perspective. See, the ascension of Christ allows us to thank the Lord for anything that comes our direction on a daily basis, because we can trust in the God who holds tomorrow in his hands. That's what the ascension does for us. Because he rose again and went into heaven, we have the promise that we who believe will rise again. And it's such a a profound thing that they did this with great joy. Here Jesus had disappeared. And they went in the upper room together and they began to worship. They began to praise him. They began to thank him. I wonder if at the gravest moments of our lives, the toughest times where we feel the most impressionable discouragement or pressures or burdens on our lives. I wonder what would happen if we got together at those times and we praised Him and we thanked Him and we were filled with great joy at those devastating hardships. I have a cousin right now 
Jessica, who's going through cancer treatments. She's in her early 30s, two little kids. And she lost all of her hair, as, as many people do when they go through those treatments. And uh, now she's starting to get a couple of them back. And, uh, you know, we were watching, looking at some of her pictures that she's posted on Facebook. And at every stage, no matter when it's been, if it was a hard day, if it was a devastating day, if it's the day when she started growing her hair back, she has got the biggest smile on her face. You know why she's got such a big smile? Because this isn't all there is. The pain of this earth is temporary. The promise of heaven is eternal. We have a God who has created us to spend eternity with Him. This is just a small moment in our lives. And if we get to looking at the things from today, it can be devastating. If we get to looking at these little time periods in our lives, these little weeks, months, if we look at things by the calendar instead of by eternity, we could get pretty mixed up. Show Jesus, as he ascended, he blessed them. And as those angels came, and I often thought about this, they said to the disciples, He's coming back, guys. It's okay. Get busy. Go ahead and work for him. You know, to their dying day, you know what those disciples expected? He'd be back. And then the disciples and the generation after them, you know what they expected every day? He'd be back. And I remember when I was a little kid hearing Jesus is coming back, and there were evangelists and had preachers and talking about Jesus is coming soon. And there were guys that were writing books. Um, I remember uh, one guy prophesied that Jesus was returning in 1989. And he wrote a book about it, and the books went off sale very quickly in 1990 there. Um, kind of like those uh, uh, 2000 books. What was it called? Y2K? Remember that? All the books about that. January 1st, 2001, they all pulled from the shelves. But there are guys saying, he's coming back. And, it, you know, I stand before you to tell you this today. He's coming back. He's coming back. He said, watch therefore and be also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. But instead of watching for him, you know what we do? We start to worry about, oh, we didn't get the oil change on the car. Oh, goodness, the grandkids are coming. And we haven't painted the spare bedroom yet. And we start to worry. And we start to get all tied up and wrapped up in the politics of this earth. In the things of this world. And it grabs our life like a boa constrictor, it begins to squeeze the joy out of us. If you want your joy back today, you know what you should celebrate? He's coming back. He's coming back. As he went up, he's going to come back. And we're going to meet him in the air. 
Are you ready to meet Jesus today? Let's bow in prayer. It's a serious question after a message from the scripture. Are you ready to meet Jesus? In your heart, in your life today, are you ready to meet Jesus? Certainly, we're talking about, do you have eternal life? Have you received the gift of eternal life? It's the number one thing on your plate today that you should figure out. But Christian, could I ask you, are you ready to meet Jesus? Or are you all concerned and wrapped up with the here and now? Do you have burdens that you're allowing to weigh down your joy? Today I'm going to ask you to respond by making sure you're ready to meet Jesus Christ. Whether it's salvation or whether it's your heart for God, whatever it would be, we'll give you an opportunity to respond to that after we pray. Father, would you work in our lives today by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that we would make a commitment to be ready to meet you, to watch for your coming, to live our lives focused on eternity instead of the here and now. Guide us in this invitation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? As you stand, Casey's going to play. The altar's open. You do what God wants you to do right now. Would you come?